take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9. We are uh, in verses 19b, 331, second half of, uh, of verse 19. And if you, depending on how your Bible is uh, 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 set up, you might have a new chapter heading uh, that splits verse 19. You may not know this, most of you probably do. The verses and the chapters aren't original. Uh, they weren't part of what God told the, the New Testament, Old Testament either, writers to write. That was done later to make finding things easy. And sometimes they, they got it just right, and sometimes the numbers are a little off. Your, your chapter numbers and verse numbers, they're not inspired or inerrant. And there's a pretty good break here in the middle of verse 19 that begins this, this next section, uh, which will actually be the last time we talk about Paul until uh, chapter 13. He's going to be Saul here when we talk about him. When we get to chapter 13, beginning of that, he'll be Saul, and then Luke will introduce the idea that, you know, occasionally they, uh, folks also called him Paul, and that's pretty much what he'll call him the rest of the time. But 19b through 31 is what we're looking at this morning, the, the radical nature of conversion. We talked about Paul's, Saul's conversion experience last week and, and, and how that occurred and, and the lengths of grace, the lengths that grace will go to to save people, to uh, bring them out of sin. Well, this morning we're going to see how radically that can change a life. Uh, two names that many of us are probably familiar with are Lee Strobel and, and Chuck Colson. And those two gentlemen, and we could have, I, I could have pulled a bunch of names out, but these two just kind of came to mind, are unexpected or were unexpected conversions. Uh, Lee Strobel was a, a reporter for, I believe, the Chicago Tribune. He was a, 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 an adamant atheist. Um, actually set out to uh, disprove Christianity. His wife got saved, and he was thinking, well, if, you know, if this has, quote, corrupted her, I need to understand it, and I need to be able to convince her that she's wrong in order to stop this lunacy. And over the course of two years, he investigated, and at the end of those two years, he came to Jesus. Uh, he got saved. Uh, Chuck Colson was a crook. Uh, he was called Richard Nixon's hatchet man, uh, spent, I believe it was seven months in, in prison because of his role in, in Watergate. But prior to even his time in prison, he was radically converted uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what makes their conversions really so radical is not the life before conversion, but the life after uh, we, we can say, oh, Lee Strobel was an atheist, and oh, Chuck Colson was a crook, but prior to conversion, they were destined for the same hell that you and I uh, were destined to prior to our conversion, if we have trusted Christ and truly been converted. What, what makes these stories, I believe, impressive uh, and, and, and mind-boggling is what they did afterward. Lee Strobel went on to write a book, uh, The Case for Christ, that was a huge bestseller. Uh, he's contributed in other ways, 
Um, I think he's written probably a couple more books, uh, Bible studies based on it and that sort of thing. Chuck Colson went on to start Prison Fellowship. His, his first ministry was uh, to improving the lives of, of inmates in prisons and, excuse me, and bringing the gospel to them. But then that grew into Prison Fellowship International. It grew into a, a radio program called Breakpoint and actually became a, an apologetics-type ministry, a, a defense of the faith. Wrote some 30 books uh, over his, his lifetime. This should be the, the, the rule for post-conversion and not the exception. Not that we all have to write books and that we all have to, to uh, start ministries, either local or worldwide, but that there's this incredible change that has a radical effect on every part of our lives. That's what we see from guys like Lee Strobel, Chuck Colson, and that's what we see here in the life of Saul. His was an example, is an example, and I believe this is at least one of the reasons God told Luke to include this in the book of Acts, so we could see the radical nature of conversion, and we see it in the life of Paul. Read with me, second half of verse 19 through verse 31. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night, intending to, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So we're going to see some aspects here as we move through this passage of the radical nature of conversion. We're going to see what happened to Paul. Uh, we're, or to, I'm going to try to use the name Saul since that's how they're referring to him here, but I'm going to fail at that numerous times, so just bear with me. Uh, it, we're going to see how it worked in Saul's life, how this, this new life that he had began to play out. The first thing we see is in uh, verse 19, verses 19 and 20, we see this unbridled enthusiasm. He, he was with the disciples in Damascus for some time, and immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God, he says. He was hanging out immediately with, with those older in the faith. 
It says he, he uh, spent time, he was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. He was spending time with fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, those that, as we're going to see and we remember from last week, he was actually there to cart off to prison. And now he begins to spend some time with him, with them. It's not surprising that Saul would do this. He was uh, a, a, a lifetime student. He, he had spent his entire life up to this point, some, he was probably around 35 years old or so, studying the scriptures, memorizing scriptures, becoming a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he tells us. So when he's radically converted by this Damascus Road experience, what's the first thing he wants to do? Hang out with people who have already trusted Christ as their Savior. Get to know more about this Jesus that he has seen from afar, has persecuted, has watched change some lives pretty radically. Think Stephen giving that sermon and Paul being there agreeing with his murder. And now he's met that Jesus on the road. He wants to learn about them, him. He wants to learn about this faith. And undoubtedly, as he hung out with these disciples in Damascus, he saw their evangelistic efforts. We, we know this was a growing community of Christians. We know, as we talked about last week, that there was no uh, orchestrated evangelistic effort to, in Damascus. This was a result of, of the Hellenistic Jews being pushed out of Jerusalem after the, the stoning of Stephen. And once they got there, that group began to grow just by their presence because they lived for Christ in the, this community they began to grow. So he saw those evangelistic efforts. He saw the, uh, the sincerity of their faith. I guarantee you he probably heard, uh, he, I guarantee you he probably, boy, that's a, that's a qualifier, isn't it? No, I will guarantee you that he heard about, well, you know, when we heard you were coming, <laughs> this isn't what we expected. And he got to hear from them what it was to be persecuted because the promise was made to him by Ananias and the Lord by the way you are going to suffer for the faith the Lord tells Ananias I will show him how much he must suffer for the faith so already he's hearing what it was like to be hunted and him the hunter I mean it's like a deer hunter going and living with a herd of uh, deer and them saying well you know when you were in that stand you know, that's basically what is going on here. But the other thing we see here, that, that this unbridled enthusiasm, is uh, he uh, was proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He went to those he knew well. And this was his lifetime pattern. He always went to the synagogues first. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's who God called him to reach. Yet, every town he went to was the first place he went to the synagogues, to his people. He wanted his people to be saved, his family to be saved. As a matter of fact, over in Romans, he will say eventually, if I could give up my own salvation for the salvation of my family, my, my fellow Jews, I would do it. He would condemn himself to an eternity separated from the Lord if he could see his own people saved. That wasn't the bargain, but that's the heart he had. So 
he's, he is unbridled in this. Hey, I've got the message they need to hear. I have been convinced of this. And when he got to those synagogues, it tells us that he told his story. That's what he was telling to these folks here. He uses the phrase um, that he's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. It might be surprising for you to learn that this is the only time in the entire book of Acts the phrase, Son of God, in reference to Jesus, is used. Son, Judge, Savior, others are used, but Son of God, this is the only time in Acts that it is used. And it's Saul that is doing this. Think of, irony is not the word, think of the travel he has made from one end of the spectrum to the other. From persecuting those that would dare say God had a son... The strict monotheism that said there's no way God could have a son. He is now proclaiming in the synagogues to those very monotheistic people, hey, he is the son of God. Already we've got mind-blowing radical conversion. He is far from where his beliefs used to be. This phrase reflects what he encountered on that road that day heading into Damascus. He saw the Son of God. Who are you, Lord? It's Jesus Christ, who you are, whom you are persecuting. Oh, my goodness. And we see what that encounter did from, I'm serving God this way, incorrectly, to, let me tell you about the Son of God. So we see uh, this radical nature of conversion in this unbridled enthusiasm of Saul. Verse 21 shows us the obvious change on the part of Saul. Verse 21, all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who is causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? Of course, the people in Damascus were a bit confused. This is not the Saul we heard about. This is not the Saul we expected. Something major has happened. And, and they could only chalk it up to what God had done to him on that road to Damascus, or what Jesus had done to him on that road to Damascus. The, the, it's an interesting uh, way Luke uses the phrase, came here. It says, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on his name and came here? That's a particular verb tense that implies a different outcome from the original intent. So even in the usage, the, the words that Luke uses here when he writes this, this uh, uh, bit of Acts, he's telling them even by the verbs he uses... Paul, Saul, came for a particular purpose, but something happened, and now he's not anywhere near what he came here to do. This radical nature of conversion. Even Luke's words can't quite grasp, can't believe what he's writing. The, 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 the words carry this, this awe at what Jesus can do in the life of someone who seems so far out of his reach. 
We see that with a, a radical conversion comes spirit empowerment in verse 22. Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving the, that Jesus is the Messiah. Here is uh, the implied echo of what Jesus promised his disciples. When you are in a position to get up and speak, I will give you the words to say. Here we see Paul, Saul, standing in front of uh, his family in Damascus, his Jewish family in, in Damascus, and confounding them by his ability to share that Jesus is the Son of God. And it wasn't, uh, it says as he grew stronger, we might think physically, we might read that and say, oh, it's because of his blindness and his fasting he's getting stronger. No, actually what this stronger means is that he is getting stronger in his sharing of the gospel. He is getting bolder. He's, he's, getting a, uh, he's, he's working on a clearer presentation, uh, for maybe lack of a better phrase. God is beginning to mold him into the greatest missionary who will ever live. He's not there yet, but the Spirit is working on him. As as great as he was, as smart as he was, as as prepared to, to teach and discuss as he was, the Holy Spirit still needs to work on Saul and do some things in him in order to bring him to the point where the Lord can use him fully. And it says he was proving to them uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, That word proving here actually would translate better uniting, but it doesn't quite make sense in our language to he was uniting Jesus the Messiah. Well, what it means is he was taking the Old Testament and taking what Jesus had said and done and uniting them for the Jews, showing them how Jesus is exactly who you've been expecting. Jesus is exactly who you've been talking about. Psalm 22, it was Jesus. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, it was, it was Jesus. Uh, Genesis 3.15, it was Jesus. All, all these passages about the coming Savior, the coming Messiah that they looked for. Genesis 12 and the seed of, of Abraham, the promise to bless all nations. That was Jesus. He is uniting that for them. Bringing those two things together and it was Blowing their mind. Wait a minute. This guy was on our side just a few weeks ago. And now he's making too much sense. And, well, they didn't like that. Verses 23 and 25, 325 show us the, the next aspect of a life radically converted We see that Saul is now marked for persecution. They didn't like that in Damascus. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plots. They were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. Let me give you a little little history here as we move from verse 22 to verse 23. There's a a gap here that Paul discusses later on in his letter to the Galatians. And he'll say he went to Damascus, he spent a little time there, then he went out into the desert of Arabia, which would have been further east of Damascus, and spent three years there, and then went to Jerusalem and 
saw the disciples, but met with Peter and James and was there for a few days and then went on his way to uh, uh, Cilicia, I believe is what he will say in, in Galatians. The gap, those three years in Arabia, occur between verse 22 and verse 23. Looks like Paul spent some time in Damascus right after his conversion, and God called him into the desert to, to grow him. Now, it's not in this passage, so I'm not going to preach that. We'll preach that text when we get to that text, or uh, I actually already have as we move through uh, Galatians on Sunday and Wednesday nights. But that's what went on here. He's now come back to Damascus. He's spending more time with them. He's, he has grown in the faith. The Lord directly, we understand, has, has taught him while in Arabia. It's very likely that he did some more evangelism while he was there. He comes back to Damascus, and he is now marked for persecution after many days had passed. That's kind of an understatement because it looks like something around a thousand days had passed, but many days had passed. The Jews conspired to kill him. He came back stronger than he was when he left, and they could not have that. He was confounding them before he left. Now he's back, and he is marked for persecution. Why is he marked for persecution? Well, because he shared a clear gospel message. He was clear on who Jesus was, on who God was through Jesus and who the people were because of who God was through Jesus. Sinners in need of a Savior, not dependent on lineage, not dependent on race, not dependent on methods of worship, but solely dependent on Jesus Christ. That's the message he brought, and that's a message they did not want to hear. His life as now an evangelist for Jesus Christ, was an affront to all of these people that at one time had been his friends, or at the very least, colleagues, or maybe just his people. But he was an affront to them. He reminded them of what they were, what they weren't, what they did believe and what they didn't believe, and they did not want that reminder. So he was marked for persecution. Another aspect, another characteristic of the radical nature of conversion. So his friends got him out of there, lowered him down uh, in a basket. We, we uh, get images of Rahab lowering the two spies down outside the walls of Jericho, uh, that kind of thing going on here. We've got the image, we've got the picture, and he leaves there and he goes to Jerusalem. This is something he also talks about in the first chapter of, of Galatians. But he gets there, verse 26. He says, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. A number of reasons why they might have been worried about this. He's been gone for three years. Where did he go? We heard he was in Damascus. We heard he was converted. Then he disappeared for three years, showed back up. And, of course, yeah, he's saying the Jews tried to kill him, and that's what some folks are telling us. But how do we know? There was an unbelievability about his conversion. The change was so abrupt and so drastic that it boggled the minds of those who knew him best. 
Because now he is back among his own people, his, his real own people. Maybe even the same synagogue, it's possible, the same synagogue that Stephen was a member of. That maybe even Saul was a member of, that was in charge or responsible for stoning Stephen now some three, five, six years ago, however long it's been. He's back among the people who knew him best. And they couldn't believe it was real. Has that happened to you? A, a conversion that, that when you go back to the people who know you, they say, well, that's just not who you were. I, I can't believe you're that different. There's no way that you could be so different from how you once were. There's unbelievability in the radical nature of conversion but there's also confirmability and I don't know if I made that word up it didn't put the red squiggly line under it when I typed it um, so somebody apparently has used it before confirmability there was confirmability about his conversion Barnabas however took him verse 27 and brought him to the disciples and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of of Jesus upon examination his conversion was clear there was confirmability sure it was unbelievable no 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 there's just no way this is Saul this is Saul who some people are going to say this is Saul whom we sent to take Christians to prison there is no way he's now one of them and then you're going to have the Christians over here saying, hey, this is Saul, the guy who went to Damascus to put Christians in prison. There is no way he is truly converted. He's not a new guy. It doesn't work that way, they might say. But remember what Luke has been doing throughout the first nine chapters. The gospel to Jerusalem. The gospel to Judea. The gospel to Samaritans. The gospel to a Gentile, the Ethiopian eunuch who follows Yahweh but is still not really what we think of when we think of Jewish church. Now, all the way to Paul, to Saul, the persecutor of the church. We talked about that last week, the lengths that grace would go. They just, but they still can't get it. Until Barnabas, the, the encourager, the one who, who looked at people and said, let me, no, we need, let's, let's, what is the Lord doing here? What, is, what has God done in this person? And when Barnabas looked, when Barnabas talked, and we don't even know how Barnabas came to this conclusion. Uh, we don't have any record that he was in Damascus at the time. We don't know what's going on, but Barnabas got it. Barnabas looked at him, and he tells the people in church, y'all, there is plenty of evidence to back up this man's conversion. Let me tell you how the Lord came to him. Let me tell you, if you don't believe that, let me tell you what he did in Damascus and how he preached the gospel and how he evangelized, how he shared Jesus with the, the Jews there and blew their minds, by the way, and almost got killed for it if he hadn't been smuggled out of, the, out of a hole in the wall. There's con confirmability in a radical conversion 
We see with Saul, though, that there's also fearless boldness. Verses 28 through 30. Saul was committed. Uh, was caught, Saul was coming and going with him in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Again, probably, possibly the same group that killed Stephen. And when the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. As I said earlier, Paul now is among the very people that sent him to persecute Christians. He's in among the people who know him best. And here in this passage, we have the second recorded attempt on his, on his life in about three years. And maybe others occurred while he was in Arabia. We don't know. But the second, the second recording atti- recorded attempt in three years. And what's he doing? What does verse 28 say? He was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He wasn't hiding behind the columns in the colonnade. He wasn't secretly slipping messages to people. He wasn't distancing himself from the church in Jerusalem, so nobody really recognized him as being a part of that group. And I'm just kind of my own. But he is coming and going with them. He, he, he's going knocking on doors is what he's doing. Hey, I'm Saul the persecutor. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, that's probably all he could begin with. Because, you know, we've, when we've gone on visitation, we can tell you some stories, folks, about, about the looks we get. And you can just imagine the home where they open the door and they're looking... It's Saul. It was Saul. Boldly. Why? Because one aspect of the radical nature of conversion is that living the gospel is more important than life. For Saul, it did not matter. Now, it wasn't his time to go. That he would, the Lord would show him in all the ways he would have to suffer for the gospel. And eventually he would give his life for the gospel. But it was not his time. But he didn't know that when he was going back and forth boldly sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. Radical conversion leads to a fearless boldness in the life of Saul. And then verse 31, we see that a radical conversion leads to a change in the church. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. This is the first time we hear anything about Christians in Galilee. It just wasn't important to this part of the story for Luke. We, we heard about some of the work in Judea, certainly heard about Philip's work in, in Samaria and Peter and uh, John going up there to and, and witnessing as they came back through Samaria. First time we've, he's mentioned Galilee, so clearly there was work being done there. We didn't learn about Damascus until Saul was on the way there. The church was growing. But part of the growth, and here's clearly why this verse is here, part of the growth Part of the the peace in the church was directly due to Saul's conversion. Saul was the chief persecutor. 
Saul was the one that was supposed to be doing all the work. And suddenly the chief persecutor is on the persecuted's side. Well, the wind just kind of went out of the sails of the synagogues. Well, we, our star pupil's gone. Let's we'll just forget it for a while. Now it picks back up. Persecution comes. Uh, and it comes with a vengeance after a little while. But we see a major change in the church in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, Damascus, maybe some spots in Arabia, because of one person's conversion. It is not my contention that every one of us will be a Paul. But it is certainly obvious that his story encouraged, emboldened, enlivened, and increased the church in Israel at this time. What has your conversion done for the church? As a matter of fact, I've got a few questions here that as we see the radical nature in Saul's conversion, I've got a question for those of you that can hear me. Have you been radically converted? Have you been radically converted? Many of us have been converted, and, and this is where I will say again, I'm not saying you have to write books or start ministries or be the best, uh, the, the, the most influential evangelist in all the world. What I'm saying, though, is do we see any of these in our personal lives? Do we, do, do we see most of these in our personal lives. Do, do you, I will ask you, have unbridled enthusiasm for the gospel? Is that the most important thing? When you think of your faith, when you think of your position in the body of believers called the church, is, is the gospel the first thing that comes to mind? Or is it peripheral uh, ideas, peripheral things that, that aren't, the gospel. Do you have unbridled enthusiasm? Is there an obvious change in your life? Do the people that, that, that you are around go, wait a minute, this is not the person I knew prior to conversion. And let me stop here for just a second and say, this is so much more difficult to live out as a person, a child of God, who became a child of God as a child. I got saved when I was nine years old, ten years old, something around in there. I think it was 84, so I think it, so that makes me nine. I was not, you know, grew up in church. My parents are here this morning. We were in church all the time. Uh, we were always going to church. It was just, it was just what we did. So, so my conversion at nine, ten years old doesn't sound radical. I, I wasn't a chief persecutor of the church at the time. Um, there was a time as a teenager where I had to come to grips and, and fully understand what that decision meant in my life. But even then, it, it, there was no... I believe what you would call radical change 
in my life, except maybe the call to the ministry, which has actually happened before that date. So this idea of an obvious change for us, well, I've always been a good person. There are a lot of good people who aren't Christians. So when I ask you if there is an obvious change in your life, this applies to those of you who have been a believer since a very, very young age. People should still see a difference between you and everybody else. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say people should see more of a difference in me because I have been a believer for I'm 43, 9, 33, 34 years. I should be further along. It should be clear to people that I'm a believer because I've been one for 34 years. Not that it has faded and I've drifted. I've, I've, I've cooled off. People should still see an obvious change in my life. Have you been radically converted? Is there spirit empowerment? Is there, uh, does the Holy Spirit obviously work through you? It was obvious to the people around Saul that God was working through him, giving him the words to say, giving him the strength. Are you marked for persecution? Is your faith such that the people around you don't like you? And not because you're a jerk. That's different. You know, Christians should be persecuted for their faith, not because they're jerks. There, there is a difference. Jesus was killed and he was never a jerk. So remember that. It's not persecution when you're running off the mouth or whatever and, and people just don't like to be around you. That's not persecution. Persecution is, are you attacked or ignored or whatever we define persecution in 21st century America as, are you persecuted because of your faith? That is a great milepost for knowing where you are on the road of a radical conversion. Is your conversion unbelievable? Is it just crazy that you are a Christian? I, 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 again, it doesn't matter how young. We should be counter-cultural as believers. No matter when we come to Christ, it should be unbelievable that we do not do the things they do. Peter, I believe, wrote in one of his letters, they think you are strange because you do not participate in the things that they participate in. Talking about the Christians versus the world. They think you're out of your mind. Is it unbelievable that you would not be involved in the things they're involved in? When they say, hey, let's go do X, and you say, I don't do X, and they go, everybody does X, and no, I'm not, I'm not talking about drug ecstasy. If you're, if you're too deep in the culture, back up. X like the, there's an algebraic word. Variable, Variable there we go. Math. <laughs> With letters. You're, you're, we're involved in that, and you should be too, because everybody isn't in No. Well, we just don't believe that you wouldn't be. Yes. Is your conversion unbelievable? Is your conversion confirmable? Do people look at you and go, there is no doubt, no doubt in my mind. Their life is a character study of who Jesus was. Their life 
is a roadmap of obedience to the Lord. Can, we, can, can you be looked at and say, and, and, and Paul, Corinthians, other places says, we are to judge one another. Look at, we will be known by our fruit. What do your fruit look like? Is it confirmable? Are you fearlessly bold? Are you scared to share the gospel? Are you scared to tell people how radical your conversion is? Does your presence make a positive change to the church? Does your conversion lift up the body or tear down the body? Well, I'll give you a hint. A conversion doesn't tear down the body. A conversion only lifts up the body. So that's why I phrased the question the way I did. Does your presence make a positive change to the church? So believer, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Maybe, believer, you know you need to get back to the radical nature of your conversion this morning. This message was for you. This message is an opportunity for you to run through a checklist, not the definitive checklist, not, not that every line is, is, is specifically and perfectly aligned to how uh, we're supposed to be all the time, every day. Uh, this is a, a picture of how it happened to Saul, but it's something we can compare ourselves to and say, am I anywhere close? Believer, maybe you need to get back to the radical nature of your conversion this morning. Maybe, in hearing this message, you see that you've never been converted. You're going, I don't have any of those things. There's nothing in my life that looks like what you're telling me here with Saul. And maybe you need to be converted. And you thought you were. You thought you were 34 years ago, but you weren't. You walked an aisle, you got dumped. There was no radical conversion in your life. Maybe it was longer than that. Maybe it was 70 years ago. Conversion is, and I'm going back to this one for a little while, as simple as ABC. Admitting that you are a sinner and asking God to forgive you. It begins there, a confession that, yes, I, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, and I need Jesus. Lord, forgive me. B, believe that Jesus is the it's who he says he is, who the Bible says he is. Perfect son of God that died in your place and took your sins and your punishment on that cross and rose three days later. I believe who Jesus is. I admit my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I trust. I believe in Jesus. And Lord, I choose to follow you. I choose to give my life to you. We use all sorts of phrases for conversion, but they all mean placing your faith and believing in him. I choose to follow you. Will you do that this morning? Unbeliever, nothing looks like conversion in your life. Believer, doesn't look much like your conversion was radical. What will you do, and how will you decide this morning? Pray with me. Thank you, Father, that you continue to work on us, you continue to guide, you continue to strengthen, you continue to call us back so that our lives look like the lives you have called us to, that we show a radical conversion, because, God, it is a radical, radical conversion. There is, there's no small salvation. There's no incidental salvation. There's no minor move from lost 
to saved, God. It is a repentance. It is a turn. It is a 180-degree change in direction that you work out by your grace and your will in our lives. And God, we pray that we as believers will have a life that exemplifies that radical conversion, that, that we can line up to Saul and say, oh, I, I want to be there. That's, where, that's, how, that's the life I want to live. Lord, I pray for those this morning who have not experienced that conversion. And they're struggling with it. And, and some of them are worried about it because everybody's always thought they were a Christian. They've got their names on various church roles. They've been members for years. They've been baptized. They, they've done all the right things, but they have never been converted. They've never truly trusted Jesus Christ is their Savior. I pray this morning for them specifically, but for others who may be hearing this gospel message for the first time, that they will trust you as Savior, and they will experience a radical conversion today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how should you respond? A, a radical conversion, a radical Jesus, requires a radical response. And Maybe you need to accept Christ this morning. Uh, you've accepted Christ, and you need to follow in obedience. It's pretty radical to, to, to do that first obedience. Be baptized, uh, return, recommit, live a life of holiness. You need to give him some things and say, Lord, I want to be used according to your purpose. Maybe you need to join our church this morning, and you just want to make that public. Whatever your decision is, you can share it on a connection card with us. You can come and pray with me or with Jordan over here to my right. I'll be over here on the left. Maybe you just want to come to these rails and give it to the Lord. Whatever your decision is this morning, let's stand, let's sing, and let's do business with God as he works on our hearts.